electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, betting on a COVID vaccine, former FDA head Scott Gottlieb on the new companies in the race. It's not going to be a winner-take-all market. I think there's room in the market for multiple manufacturers here to be successful. Looking for happiness these days? Arthur Brooks, columnist for The Atlantic, suggests now is the time. People are saying, where do we want our economy and our society to be? How is this an, a, a hinge point, an inflection where we can actually look, where we can dream and dream And Shopify, the e-commerce platform with a 70% boost to its business during the coronavirus pandemic. COO Harley Finkelstein. What we want to do is enable brands to sell anywhere where they have consumers, whether it's online or offline or on Facebook or on marketplaces. Those stories plus, do you know where your phone is? If you watch Dateline, um, people know where you are all the time. The tracking app that could keep the pandemic from spreading comes with a privacy price. It's Tuesday, May 26th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Some new COVID-19 developments breaking from Merck. The company announcing the acquisition of Austrian vaccine maker Themis, or I think it's called Themis, for an undisclosed amount. Merck also unveiling a partnership with research nonprofit IAV on two separate vaccines and a collaboration with privately held Ridgeback Biotherapeutics on an experimental oral drug for COVID-19 patients. These developments follow news that U.S. biotech company Novavax has started the first human study of its experimental coronavirus vaccine as well. The company expects initial results on safety and immune responses in July. The Maryland-based biotech firm says that upon successful completion of the phase one, the phase two portion of the trial will be conducted in several countries, including the United States. Joining us right now is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He, of course, is former FDA commissioner. He's also a CNBC contributor, and he is on the boards of both Illumina and Pfizer. And Dr. Gottlieb, good to see you. What do you think of this news? Uh, First, specifically this news from Merck, let's say. Well, look, this is good news. We all assumed Merck was in this game. They had indicated they were developing a vaccine. We all assumed they were using the Ebola platform, the um, VSV platform. So they have a platform for their Ebola vaccine where they use a virus that's basically a cattle virus. It's found in cattle. um, And they substitute in a protein for the Ebola uh, bug, in this case, they're going to do it with the coronavirus bug on the surface of that virus, and it codes for the spike protein. So it codes for development of the spike protein, and you develop an immune reaction to the, to the um, spike protein itself. So basically, a similar kind of approach, trying to target the spike protein, but a completely different uh, vaccine platform, and one that Merck knows very well, because they were successful developing the Ebola vaccine using the same platform. So they have a head start on doing it here. I mean, it's exciting to hear this on on top of the other news that we talked about this morning with Novavax, uh, watching kind of through with the, and Merck, by the way, that's a big company for for that stock to be popping by four point three per six this morning. If you look at Novavax, it, it's up by about twenty four percent. But of course, a, a much smaller company uh, talking about trying to push a vaccine over the finish line. But what's exciting is to think that there are so many different potential places uh, that could be developing a vaccine like this. What, what does that make you think? 
think, just in terms of the odds of, of at least one or two of these things striking? Well, look, and, and different approaches as well. So you have the major manufacturers are mm -hmm. in this game, the big pharmaceutical companies, and they're each taking a different approach. And I think that that's very good, the fact that we have so much variety in how we're going after this virus. And so if one approach doesn't prove successful, it doesn't seem to produce enough of an immune response, we have many different approaches. The adenoviral vector vaccine approach at Oxford and J&J is using the mRNA approach that Moderna and Pfizer is using the protein approach that Novavax and Sanofi is using, and now Merck's approach, which is to use attenuated um, viruses. They're using a, an attenuated measles virus, and in this case, VSV, vesicular stomatitis virus, which is a virus that infects cattle, cattle, livestock primarily, and that's what they use to successfully develop an Ebola vaccine. These are all very distinct approaches, and so one of these is going to work, um, and one of them is going to work to produce enough immunogenicity to produce a protective vaccine. If you look at what the Chinese are doing, by contrast, they have one approach where they're using an adenoviral vector, AD5, a very, uh, an older um, adenoviral vector platform approach that a lot of people have seen that virus, and so they have some cross immunity to it, which isn't good, meaning that when you give them that vaccine, their bodies actually attack the vaccine construct. And then there are other approaches that use an activated virus, a very old approach, um, maybe faster to market potentially, but probably won't produce the same amount of immunogenicity, the same immune reaction that some of these newer approaches that the Western manufacturers are taking. Hey, Scott, let's, let's just say, in the best-case scenario, that all of these approaches work and all of them give you some level of immunity. Which one would you want? Which one would you personally want as a vaccine, just based on the safety factors? Well, look, I don't think it's going to be winner-take-all here. I think we need multiple manufacturers in the market. And I think, unlike the flu market, these are going to be more differentiated. So there might be some vaccines that are more... Um, you know, targeted to an older population because they might produce more immunogenicity in an older population, some that you might have more of an assurance around their safety, so you might use it in a younger population. So I think it's going to be a little bit of mixing and matching and using these vaccines in different places. But it's not going to be a winner-take-all market. I think there's room in the market for multiple manufacturers here to be successful. So, Scott, the, the old-style egg cell manufacturer, which took forever, that, that's, that's one side of, of the, the equation. What is the fastest? What, which one of these uh, would, would be the quickest and easiest to, to, to duplicate exactly what you'd want to make vaccine? Uh, uh, Moderna's pretty easy, isn't it? What is that, PCR or something? Or you can make just millions and millions of that quickly, right? Yeah, they're, they're all, they all should be um, scalable. Um, there's going to be limitations on the manufacturing, at least initially, because there's components in these vaccines that are harder to produce. And so in the case of an RNA vaccine, you need some lipids. There's other things that go into that the besides lipid, yeah. just the RNA construct. Um, you know, but, but things like the adenoviral vector vaccine, that should be highly scalable, and you should be able to produce antigen at, at very high um, output once you get a manufacturing facility running. Same with Sanofi's vaccine. If Sanofi produces a billion doses of vaccine a year, that company knows how to produce protein-based vaccines. I think all of these are going to be very scalable. I mean, every company has said that they could be producing billions of doses into 2021, and that's probably right. Once they get these scaled up, they can, they can churn them out pretty, uh, in pretty high quantities. A billion. Uh, just a billion anything. Uh, just seeing a billion packages of something uh, is a lot. Uh, you know, I... Not for nothing. I, I love uh, I love Vice President Biden, but these guys may need some type of profit incentive eventually uh, if they're if they're doing that. I don't know. Maybe uh, someday. Anyway, thank you. Um, appreciate it, Dr. Gottlieb. Now let's get uh, or at least discuss the latest on high tensions between the U.S. and China. Let's welcome 
Arthur Brooks, American Enterprise Institute President, Emeritus, Harvard University professor, uh, now author of a new column for The Atlantic, huh? You, you know, that's, yeah. a great, that's a great thing about you. Why would you, uh, <laughs> why would you go to, to a place where you're preaching to the choir? Go somewhere where there are basically 100% of uh, the people need to be converted. Uh, anyway, <laughs> yeah, uh, how to build a life, uh, Arthur, thank you for joining us. We, we didn't mention a uh, French horn player emeritus from the Barcelona Symphony Orchestra, too. Yes, we? indeed. Yes, indeed. It's a, it's a, you can do a lot of things in life, right, Joe? Uh, yes, you can. Uh, uh, you're, <laughs> you're absolutely right. Are there, um, we can talk China. We can talk. We haven't talked in so long. I mean, American Enterprise Institute. And then think of the Fed balance sheet and the amount of money that we're spending. Are, are, are we going to make our way out of this someday, Arthur? Yeah, we we tend to make our way out of these big messes, Joe. As you know, capitalism is the best way to get your way out of almost any economic mess. Um, it's a mess, to be sure. But there are all kinds of incredible opportunities that lay ahead of us. I mean, think about it. I mean, all of our friends who favor a more collectivist approach are looking at the current uh, the current situation as an opportunity to radically raise taxes. Well, those of us who prefer a more limited government approach can think about this as an opportunity to radically deregulate for new entrepreneurs which would be great for the economy to 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 divest of a, a good amount of federal federally owned assets to pay 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 down some of the debt that we're accruing. There's a lot that we can do to get out of this, but the key thing to remember is that democratic capitalism is the best tonic for any economic woes. The uh, it's bad to waste a crisis. You can see it sort of happening, our, our, and then once we some of these steps are put in, they never get taken out, and and certain. Uh, people on, on the political spectrum want to use this to do a lot of different things, I think. Um, but you can't really bring it up, Arthur. Then you're, you're being cold-hearted and I don't know. Um, do you see it happening, though? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's pretty normal. I mean, anybody who's a good political or policy entrepreneur will look at the current situation and say, look, what, what are the changes that we need to make? I mean, legitimately, people are saying, where do we want our economy and our society to be? how is this an, a hinge point, an inflection where we can actually look, where we can dream and dream bigger? I mean, any entrepreneur knows that where, where other people see tragedy and challenge, we should be seeing crisis. Oh, and the same man. thing is true Arthur, for you and me. You're so antiquated. Don't you see that the government is saving us so socialism is the right way to go? I mean, it, we, we aren't capitalists anymore. This is all about <laughs> government uh, saving us. So how can you, with a straight face, say that that this is about capitalism when, once again, you need to be bailed out. Well, we will we will see when this is all over. And, and almost every American sees right now that in point of fact, it's only capitalism that's going to bail us out. I mean, people are saying, well, well look, the American system is in shambles. Well, who, who actually thinks that it's going to be anything but but the, you know, the Western industrialized entrepreneurial economies that are going to come up for a solution to this crisis? And we should be thinking that way to say, okay, look, I understand why we have the welfare state. I understand why we have the government. But this is a great opportunity for us to understand better our entrepreneurial economy. Look, what can we actually do right now to roll back the regulatory state such that new entrepreneurs, when we come out of this, have more opportunity to thrive? What can we do just boldly right now to actually make it easier for new entrepreneurs to to, to flourish as we come out of this? And by the way, and the, and the other point is this, you know, how do we pay back the five or six or seven trillion dollars? Well, you know, one way to do it is to to add a lot of punitive taxes forever. But, you know, the federal government owns a lot of assets. 
how much and what could we actually find that we could put into private hands to, to pay back some of this, which would be actually good for the American economy to begin with as well. Let's be creative. Arthur, I, I don't think anybody's debating capitalism or the virtues of capitalism. I think there's a question about free market capitalism. I think you're talking about regulations to some degree. And I, I think we all want more entrepreneurship. And clearly, you look at some of the efforts on vaccines and we cross our fingers and hope that those, right. that those capitalistic efforts, if you will, uh, will, 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 will save us in, in truth. But at the right. same time, I think what Joe mentioned, I think he was, he was saying it sarcastically, in, in part for my benefit, um, <laughs> is we are relying, you know, you talk about wanting to have a more limited government. We are relying on the government at this point. We are relying on the Federal Reserve to both print money, the Treasury Department to hand out money in ways that we haven't in generations. And right. isn't that um, an, an indictment, really, not of capitalism at all? I don't think this is about capitalism. I think this is about how, how do we find the right balance between taxing people and paying for things, in this, for, in this case, a form of insurance, if you will, for all of us. And, and what is the right balance to actually encourage economic growth, encourage job creation, and also be able to pay for what we're doing? Because even in the best of times, Arthur, and I know you'll agree with this because the data is just it is what it is. Even in the best of times, we don't pay for what we're doing. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and the truth of the matter is that I don't think any of us object to the existence of the welfare state or a government that does redistribution. Um, I think personally, the greatest achievement of capitalism is our ability to support people, brothers and sisters, people who are less fortunate than we are, that we've never even need, need we've never even met. In fact, it's only capitalism that's made that possible. But it's true. We've been irresponsible in spending more than we can actually afford to and, and pretending that We'll be an economy that can print money forever at the international level and that people will take our bonds forever. And that's foolishness, to be sure. This crisis is a day of reckoning for that. The question is going to become, is the right way to deal with this extraordinary circumstances where we're doing more of what we've been doing wrong, but we're doing more of this for for, for logical reasons in a big way is the way to get out of that to, to, to go into a European style welfare state that is way, way more redistributive and has much more punitive rates of taxation. Or are we going to find a better way to actually deal with these circumstances to cut back our permanent spending levels when we go back to a status quo and in point of fact, divest of federal and state assets that some people would say we shouldn't own in the first place. So Arthur, getting back to China, that's, that's how we, we intro this. Do you, uh, you have a um, some type of prescription for how to deal with this. Obviously, it's very important for both countries to, to have a, a, a strong relationship in terms of trade, I, I guess. Right. But it, uh, is there should punitive measures be taken? Should we get some type of re remuneration from, from China for for everything that's happened? And are they continuing to be bad actors in a lot of different uh, settings? Well, for sure, China's continuing to be a bad actor in all kinds of settings. Whether we can get remuneration is another matter. That's a very complicated thing. Some have said we should default on debt that's actually owned by the Chinese. There's no viable way to do that or to make it possible to sue the Chinese government. That The real question is, what should our relationship look like going forward? Five years from now, what do we want the U.S.-China relationship to look like? And it shouldn't look like the way it currently looks. And everybody agrees on that. You can get John Bolton or Larry Summers on the program, and they're going to tell you that we need to reorder that relationship. It's pretty amazing that we have this disease vector imposed on the, on the world, unraveling the world economy. And now to get 
masks and protective gear were reliant on China. That's, that's really dysfunctional. The problem that we have in our foreign policy today is that we do sort of the opposite of the Teddy Roosevelt maxim of, of, of speaking softly and carrying a big stick. We're, we don't have much of a stick and we're walking around screaming about how much we dislike China. That's the wrong way to do it. We should imagine the, a, a, a decoupling of key parts of the U.S.-China relationship in, in tech and protective gear and medicines, and we should do it, we should do it quietly and we should do it in a friendly way. That's the adult way to do it, as opposed to, you know, sort of tweeting our way through foreign policy, well, which is uh, not going to get us anyplace. Funny you said that, because I remember your last book and I love your books, but I, I can't live by your last book. And, and what was it? <laughs> love, love your enemies or something. Yeah. Are you not on Twitter? I do. I'm, they do not love me, my enemies. And, and I yeah. do not love them. I don't have one iota of of. Uh, favorable personal feelings for a lot of people. And, and I can't, I, I'm sorry, Arthur, I, 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 this day and age, what are we going to do about this? A, am I wrong? Yeah. 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 Well, a little bit, Joe. And I hate to say that you're wrong because I love you, Joe. I really do. But I'm kidding. But, and, and, <laughs> I tell my, my, my daughter writes things about we all we all got to come together politically. It's like I do not want to come together with those people. I'm not going yeah, to. I know. I'm not but it's going one thing to. to. No, no, no. But to. it's OK. It's OK, Joe. You don't have to. Okay. So here's the deal. I mean, it's like loving your enemies is not the same thing as agreeing with your enemies. It's acquiescing to your enemies. It's basically figuring out that the fact that they were your enemies was an illusion. Look, particularly inside the United States, we're just we're, we're riven. We're being dr- driven apart by this stupid polarization. And that doesn't mean we have to agree, <sighs> but we have to have a competition of ideas that has account? to be functional. Do you not have are I you do. Not on Twitter? Huh? It's full of love, Joe. It's full of love. <laughs> you, you're blocking a lot. of. See, I, mine is full of love because I've blocked everyone else. Uh, anyway, Arthur. I'm kidding about all that. I wish we could come together. It's just that I know. Uh, both sides are nasty, nasty, nasty. Yeah. Anyway. I agree. Next on Squawk Pod, Shopify is the e-commerce platform that allows about a million merchants to sell to staying-at-home consumers. The company's COO on coronavirus's online boom. Any small business or big business can tap into our network and can do two-day affordable shipping uh, eventually anywhere in the world. We're just trying to level the playing field for entrepreneurs. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Consumers are shifting their spending from in-store to online, and e-commerce presence has now become so critical for businesses just to stay afloat. And many rely on platforms like cloud-based Shopify, which has now jumped 73% since the WHO declared a pandemic in mid-March. Shopify powers sites for 1 million businesses worldwide, including Allbirds, Staples, and PepsiCo and has some big plans for its own business, possibly to rival the likes of Amazon. It has uh, been one of the story stocks, if you will, of this pandemic. Carly uh, Finkelstein is the Shopify's chief operating officer, and he joins us now. It's great to see you, Harley. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. This has been a, a remarkable story, and the expansion of what's even taken place for you over the past 
two months now is, is remarkable, including a partnership with Facebook, which I want to talk about in just a minute. But in terms of just insight, if you could provide it in terms of big surprises, in terms of what you're seeing retailers on the platform, what's the one thing that you think people haven't fully appreciated about this, this e-commerce phenomenon? Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on the show, as, as always. A, a couple things. The first thing is that I think uh, the year 2030, in terms of what retail and commerce would look like in 2030, has been pulled into 2020. And that sort of happens in, in, in two ways. On the supply side, you actually have the, a tale of two completely different retail worlds. You have these archaic retailers that have been resisting change, that viewed multi-channel as a strategy, which it's not, it's a tactic. Um, and then you have on the other side, these resilient retailers, um, some of these companies that are, are new to the market that have been around for a couple of years that have very quickly pivoted and adapted and they're succeeding. But you also have companies like Lint and Heinz Ketchup that are using Shopify and in a matter of a couple of days, completely changed their business model to go direct to consumer. And in many ways, it's really exciting, but there is two different retail worlds. On the other side, you have demand. And I think consumers are, are voting with their wallets right now. They want to buy from independent brands, but also e-commerce as a percentage of total retail, it took about eight years to go from like 5% to like 15%. And it's taken 10 weeks to go from 15% to over 24% or 25%. So you have this incredible catalyzing of retail and commerce. And those that are adapting are doing really great. And those that aren't, right. unfortunately, are being left behind. It sounds like you are bearish, though, on the idea of multi-channel. Why is that? No, not bearish at all. In fact, just the opposite. I just think the fact that we're still talking about multi-channel shows how archaic some of these old retailers were. When you think about the companies that have struggled, the Forever 21s, the Barneys, the Pier 1s, the Neiman Marcuses, the J. Crews, they viewed multi-channel as, as, as a strategy. That's not the strategy. The strategy is sell everywhere where your consumers are. And if that's online or offline or on Facebook or Instagram or on marketplaces, that is the, the strategy is to sell everywhere. And I think that a lot of these retailers simply, they, they didn't view it that way. They viewed this multi-channel as a strategy in itself. And that was wrong. Right. Harley, explain the, the partnership with Facebook, because there's, there's a number of analysts out there that are bullish about it. And I'll tell you some other investors that I think are a little scared of it. Um, in terms of how much of the business they may ultimately get, even though you're going to be tied into it, that they might ultimately be able to either peel off or take share of. Yeah, we don't, we don't see it that way at all. In fact, we've been working with Facebook for over five years now. And in fact, as soon as they started thinking about commerce and retail, we've been a part of those conversations and have been their partner on it. I think Shopify is the best at commerce globally. I think Facebook is has the biggest reach. And so connecting the million or more brands on Shopify with consumers, in many cases that are spending time on Facebook and Instagram, we think is a great match and a great partnership. But remember, the, the what Shopify has really become, and I know you talked about this a bit in your in, in your in your intro is that we are not just an e-commerce provider. We really are this retail operating system. And what we want to do is enable brands to sell anywhere where they have consumers, whether it's online or offline or on Facebook or on marketplaces, but it all feeds back into one centralized back office or retail operating system, uh, if you will. And that so the more places that can that merchants and brands can sell the more they the more they make, the more complexity there is and the more value Shopify provides them. You are in the very early stages of getting into the fulfillment business, which, which, which would put you directly 
at, at odds or, or at, a, at becoming a true rival, if you will, with Amazon. What's the timeline of that look like? What are the services that you would need to provide? And what does that investment require? Yeah, it's a great question. So beyond, you know, enabling brands to sell in all these different channels and creating the retail operating system. One thing we started doing the last couple of years is thinking about this, this new area called merchant solutions. What are the things that every SMB, every entrepreneur needs, but they themselves on their own cannot get. So we started with payments by creating Shopify payments. We then created Shopify capital. We've now given out about a billion dollars of capital to small businesses. Uh, we've, we've created new things, but Shopify fulfillment network is one of those things that every merchant on their own cannot simply get a affordable two-day shipping. However, Shopify in aggregate right now, if you just look at our U.S. stores, we are the second largest online retailer in America after Amazon beyond and above everybody else. And that means we can go and negotiate on behalf of a million stores. And instead of keeping the economies of scale for ourselves, we can give the economies of scale directly to the small businesses and level that playing field. So for SFN, we've we've said that we need about five years to do this. We're about one year in. We have dozens of people already using it, dozens of brands already using the fulfillment network. But what we want to do is expand it so that any small business or big business can tap into our network and can do two-day affordable shipping uh, eventually anywhere in the world. And they don't have to use uh, some big marketplaces uh, products where they put their branding on the boxes and they have to sell in their marketplace. We're just trying to level the playing field for entrepreneurs. And, and this is another way to do that. Harley, uh, it is an amazing story. I hope you come on back. If you bought into the stock, it's up, I think, 45x at this point. Uh, thank you. Uh, we will uh, talk to you soon. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Next on Squawk Pod, they know what you did this summer. Tracking apps, that is. China's strategy to use tech to prevent further spread of COVID-19. The apps and the costs, right after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older. Like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Becky. One Chinese city unveiling a proposal to permanently track its residents' health using a smartphone app. The city of Guangzhou's proposal would give people a score based on various factors, including electronic medical records, results of physical examinations, and lifestyle choices such as alcohol consumption. Tracking systems were quickly adopted in many Chinese cities during the coronavirus outbreak and used to determine whether a person could actually enter a building or use public transportation. But this appears to be 
be the first sign that the tracking apps may become the new normal in China's cities. And a huge reason, guys, I think it will be very difficult to take similar measures like that here in the United States. The whole idea of it is a little crazy. Now, granted, there are a few things that we have given up some of our liberties for. If you use Waze or any of these other things, it tracks how fast you're going at any point in time. And, and, and that's kind of the beginning of the encroachment, uh, encroachment, I should say, that's I'm mixing it with corrosion, so it's one of those good mix-ups you like, Joe. But yeah, it, you know, this whole idea where insurance companies are asking you to, to sign up and, and say, okay, you can track what I'm doing. There have been some people who have very readily signed up for that, even though I think the, the, you know, the, the get-back, the money, the discount that you get is, is a relatively nominal amount. But I, I think that's crazy. I think it's the beginning of kind of giving away a lot. And if you're asking people to give up even more, I think you're going to have a tough time with it. Really? I... I'm okay, I guess, being tracked. But it's amazing that we think of everything in the prism of personal rights again. I mean, this is the whole shutdown. You watch the way that each side frames this whole thing, and it's, it's very strange the, 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 how polarized every discussion of, every, of everything is. Are you, I'm okay being tracked, I think, if you... I, if, we, we're all tracked all the time. You carry around a phone and they can track you. Like, you agree to, by just simply doing this, there's somebody who can track you. And we've seen some of the videos. We've had the people on our, our, right. our show talking about how they were tracking people who were at the beach uh, down in Florida and then how they went back around the country and how they could watch those things. It's not tracked on a personal basis, but we have all right. gradually given up more and more of our privacy with things like Facebook and, and, and Twitter and all kinds of other things anyway. The, uh, I wonder how generational it is, though, meaning yeah. I, I feel like the I, people that are younger than myself have, feel like they're they're fine to give away stuff that I might not feel comfortable with. I, I think that there's sort of because I haven't thought uh, through the consequences, just a piece that certain people, uh, certain generations have come to about privacy. Maybe they don't understand uh, the implications, but I don't know. I don't know. I've always been surprised at how much mm-hmm. people are willing to give away. So maybe it's a bad trade. If you watch Dateline, we'll um, people know where you are all the time. So don't ever try to do anything because uh, if your phone's on, you know, you know how they say, no, I was yeah. here. And they go, no, there's a cell tower right here. You there were you like are. two blocks away from the cell tower where this person was kidnapped. OK, so you were there. We know. Okay. So they know where we are. But hopefully you're not. Uh, what's wrong? Right. They do. That's the show for today. On our rundown tomorrow, John Stanky, the incoming CEO of AT&T, on the day that the HBO Max streaming service launches. More binging ahead. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. FedEx.